Welcome to The Wheel, a Collegium Institute podcast, hosted by Collegium Student Fellows together with senior members of our team. This podcast features interviews with visiting scholars and faculty authors of new work that help us to appreciate the shape of life today, both in its dynamism and in its timelessness. Here we approach the mysteries of reality with wonder, exploring from a wide variety of disciplinary angles, all of which revolve around a core commitment to the unity of truth. Here, authors make the case for how and why their books are important, not just for specialists in their own field, but for all of us inside the university and out who seek wisdom for a life well lived. Why should someone who's not religious today be concerned about the Reformations? Well, it's such a major change in Western history. A change at a time where religion was interwoven into every aspect of life. It's a world that at present day we find hard to imagine how deeply interwoven religion was with everything else. And the Reformation era is the time where the, that linkage begins to be pulled apart. So that's why we need to know about the Reformation. It tells us Looking at it tells us, or helps us see, how we got to where we are, why things are the way they are, and why there are still uh, so many conflicts between religious ideology and political ideology, and between religion and just every other aspect of life. And how is it relevant to people outside of the West? Well, anyone outside of the West who deals with the West would be very uh, well served by having this knowledge of how the West came to be what it is and how, how it is that uh, religion still shapes the West. Because there, there are other parts of the world, non-Western parts of the world, where religion is still interwoven into every aspect of life, right? And it's often quite a shock. People who come from cultures where religion is, in fact, inseparable from culture, it's a shock when they discover the, the separation of the two in the West, so it helps to figure things out. And the Protestant Reformation is a lengthy and complicated topic, so what motivated you to tackle it? I was attracted to it from uh, very early on in life, Mm -hmm. and I think one incident in particular I can pinpoint in my life. I actually saw religious images being smashed in Cuba. I saw men working for days with sledgehammers knocking religious images down from a a former school run by Ursuline nuns. Mm. And um, that's when I realized, oh, wait a minute, change is often violent, and when it involves religion, it involves destroying symbols. And then one thing led to another. (laughs) Also, I think because Reformation is all about change, change that bills itself as improvement, that also attracted me to it. I'm somewhat of a, an iconoclast and reformer myself, or would be. I'm not as brave as, as the reformers were. Mm-hmm. But I was attracted to these characters. What can be gained for the public reading of the book? What can be gained from your texts? Well, like uh, any work of history, the past is who we are. We, we all have our individual past, our memory. That's who we are. That defines who we are. When you lose your memory, you lose your identity. You don't know who you are. Same thing 
for the larger picture. No one lives completely isolated from the world or their culture. In order to realize the, the identity of your culture, you have to understand its, its past. And of course you can get along without it. You can live your life without it and be perfectly happy. But if you are the least bit interested in thinking deeply about your place in the world, this helps immensely. Getting into the actual book, you mentioned the errors of previous scholars who attempt to provide a summation of the Reformations, calling one attempt ludicrous. What are their failures in accurately depicting history? Well, there have been many Reformation narratives, and, and every, with every generation comes up with its own. There used to be the, the old, it was called the Whig narrative, right? Which was that the Reformation was the beginning of modernity. The Reformation was the beginning of the future. And it was a nice upward curve, progress, 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 enlightenment that all begins with the Reformation. That's the oldest narrative. Of course, Catholics did not like that narrative <laughs> at all. Uh, Catholics didn't view the Reformation as a Reformation. They viewed it as a revolution or a revolt. Right? So there are Catholic histories of the Reformation that actually use that terminology. You know, they're rebels and we have the real Reformation. Mid-20th century, uh, this began to change, and um, historians began to look at different aspects of Reformations, plural. The different Protestant Reformations, and the Catholics too having a Reformation, and making all of them Reformations. The one uh, book I called Ludicrous was Carl Hole, published in 1911 the cultural significance of the Reformation, where he abstracted the German people into an entity changed forever by Luther, and Luther's Reformation turned into basically a politically handicapped people because the relationship between church and state, as he saw it, that, that Luther set in place for Germany, made them totally incapable of forming a nation-state until they got past that and then made them totally incapable of ever, ever, ever waging an aggressive war on anyone else or of conquering other people. Something that we all know sadly was proven false in the mid-20th century. What historiographical methods did you employ in writing this book? I like to say that what I do is total history. I look at all of history, every aspect of history. I'm not very good at doing economic history because I've never studied economics. And I also failed math in high school. So it's always scared me. So I do just about every kind of history except for economic history. But I have counted prices when I was studying uh, mass requests in Spain. And I've done my own charts and graphs, uh, you know, pegging the number of masses people ask to the inflation. So I've done a little bit of economic history too, but I think doing total history is the only way to do history, which is to take everything seriously and not exclude any approach. And out of the numerous authors, including Hull, who you mentioned, how did you pick Weber and Trolch, for example? I picked Weber and Trolch in the, especially in the conclusion to my book, because their arguments are so monolithic. 
right? And they they stand out in such bold relief and are still being discussed a hundred years later. You know, if anything's still alive, nobody talks about whole, for instance, that I know of. Nobody talks about Hull's uh, cultural significance of the Reformation, but people still talk about Trelch and Weber a hundred years later. And the jury is still out and arguing. It's a hung jury, basically. And the trial keeps going on. So they shape our thinking. It wouldn't have made any sense for me to uh, talk about, let's say, 18th century historians, mm -hmm. because they have no they're not a reference point for people reading the book now. So you recognize that every historian has to choose an approach and that every historian holds personal beliefs and preferences which affect their research. And you refer to a zeitgeist, which is the spirit of a particular age, which historians are subject to and limited by. What preconceptions do you enter the topic with and what trends reflect the zeitgeist you exist in? I think there's a personal connection every historian has to the work they do and the approach they take. In my case, I think the fact that I lived through a Marxist revolution and lived in a Marxist totalitarian state and was for a while, until I escaped, forced to believe in Marxism the same way that I had been as a child forced to believe in Catholic Christianity, that I saw the relationship between political and religious belief. And it's not just the relationship. It, that when you come down to it, political belief and religious belief are one and the same. They're belief. So that's what I brought to writing Reformations, right? The knowledge, the personal knowledge and personal exposure to the power of belief to shape cultures and societies and to shape behavior. That was, and, and that's our, our zeitgeist, where this is something we're, we're dealing with, is what is true? What do you believe? Is, uh, for instance, economic inequality the greatest evil in the world? And is doing away with economic inequality the goal that everyone should have? Is that a political belief or is it a religious belief? It's hard to draw the line if you read, for instance, Pope Francis. With him, there is no line. But beliefs do shape behavior and how you conceive of the world and you conceive of what is true, good, and beautiful shapes the way that you make your laws or, or shape the way in which you take on the status quo if you find that the status quo is, is uh, not satisfying or, or wrong or evil. What motivates a Nelson Mandela what motivates any other individual in modern history who has taken on the system? It's belief. A few years ago, you wrote an article reviewing James Google's In the Valley of Shadows, um, revealing your academic interest in death. Does death have a history? Well, that has a history, too, in that, uh, and again, it's personal. But I think that any, you know, any historian who's honest has to say that their interest in whatever they're interested in has some kind of, of personal resonance linked to their, their own life story. One of my earliest childhood memories is learning that people died. <laughs> I was terribly upset. It's not fair. And I've been obsessed with death since childhood. But interestingly enough, doing the history of death, I didn't know the history of death existed until I was asked to review a book 
by someone I had never heard of before, Philippe Ariès, a French historian, who wrote a book, uh, L'Homme Devant la Mort, translated into English as The Hour of Our Death. Right? I was asked to review this book, and I took it on somewhat reluctantly because I thought it might scare me. But then it, it just opened up this whole world to me that, yeah, you can, you can study attitudes towards death. You can study mentalities. You can study the way in which the conception of the afterlife, beliefs in the afterlife, shape everyday life in the material world. So I was hooked because it was one of my obsessions, and it wasn't scary. It actually revealed things to me. But again, you can always come to a point where you have a personal link. And I remember for me, working, reading wills in Madrid, I had to do my own cataloging because there was no catalog. So I made a list of people and their death date so I could organize them by year. And I'm spending days and days making these lists. And one day I have a, a dream that I see my own name on the list with a date next to it. But I wake up, right? I wake up. In my dream, I saw a date that woke me up. But I still don't know what the date was. But it, you know, it just kind of came alive. And not in the nicest way, but boy, that gave me a completely different perspective on these people whose wills I was reading. And I think, you know, any psychiatrist would probably say, right? that I projected myself into my project, mm. right? Sure, I did, but I think that was beneficial. And back to the book a little bit, uh, you write that when the Protestant Reformation is viewed as a revolution, the religious dimensions are transcended into the political, social, economic, and cultural realms. In your work, you note, yet there is no denying that religion is the axis from which these other manifestations of change radiate much like spokes on a wheel. Can you elaborate on this statement? Sure. What I said before about religion being tied to every aspect of life before the Reformation mm -hmm. and during the Reformation, if you're really looking at the change that takes place, the change that people ask for, the changes they make, or the changes they don't get to make, they touch every aspect of life. So that's why I think studying the Reformation in particular because it's all about changing the world. It's not just about changing religion because we now in the 21st century tend to separate religion and the world or religion and life. No. When you're looking at the Reformation, you're looking at people who want to change every aspect of life because changing religion means changing just about everything. So you have to look at everything, including the price of a mass and how the price of a mass compares to the price of a pound of wax. And what cultural implications can we see today as the result of the Protestant Reformation? Well, we see many. One of them is sort of religious pluralism in the West. Mm -hmm. I used to begin my Reformation course by reading from the yellow pages of the New Haven phone book and just going through the names of the different churches. How did we get this? How did we get here? Religious pluralism is, is the main observable almost tangible factor that we have of what happened in the Reformation, but we have also all sets of intellectual and spiritual components of life, beliefs, right, that are changed because of the Reformation, including every Christian church 
even the ones that have no direct connection to the Reformation. Let's say churches that came into existence last year. They're part of that pluralism. They're part of that fragmentation. It can all be traced back to this moment. Almost kind of like a Big Bang. So we tend to want to understand how we became to exist in a secularized society, but you instead focus on desacralization. Firstly, what is desacralization? And secondly, why do you tell the story of the Reformations as one of desacralization rather than secularization? Right. You know, there are some who would disagree. But I think that the fact that the Reformation, Protestant Reformation, the Protestant Reformation does away with the miraculous, the claim that miracles happened in Bible times but not afterwards. It makes the world less, less of a connection to the divine and to the supernatural. You know, what is the sacred? The sacred is another dimension. The sacred is always something in this world that is considered to have a connection to a higher reality or to another reality. How do you define the connection? The connection between this world and that world. That's what determines your concept of what's sacred. So the Reformation takes away lessons to different degrees. Each church does it differently in the Reformation, but they, they lessen the connection. They make the connection less tangible. So the world is desacralized in that way. So that, for instance, prime example. Reformed Protestants refuse to believe that Jesus is present in the bread and wine of the Eucharist. So, what do they do when they storm churches, when they want to reform? They take the, the consecrated bread, the host, feed it to animals, <laughs> or they stomp on it, or they throw it into sewers and latrines. They're not just desacralizing, they are redefining the whole meaning of sacred. So you write that the change in perspective caused by the desacralization affected the world more profoundly than any other paradigm shift brought about by scientists like Copernicus and Galileo at the time. This is a bold statement, and I'm wondering if you could explain the role of science in the Reformations for us. Yeah, well, the two can't be separated completely. But the reason that I focus on the desacralization as a stronger or deeper paradigm shift in the 16th and 17th century is that very few people were affected by Copernicus and Galileo. Copernicus and Galileo changed nothing or next to nothing in the social, political, economic fabric of their world. And it was something that affected maybe intellectuals, would-be scientists. So in that respect, that's why I think that the paradigm shift with the sacred is more important at this time period. But skepticism, the skepticism and the attitude towards the natural world as comprehensible and understandable on its own terms affects both Catholics and Protestants at this time because Copernicus and Galileo were Catholic. And then there are great scientists on both sides, Catholic and Protestant. But these things happen in tandem. The scientific revolution 
the rise of skepticism, the reformations are all intertwined. So Charles Taylor's book, A Secular Age, has created a lot of discussion about our experience of belief as one option among others. How does your work relate to this? It relates to it in that I'm looking at the breakup, I'm looking at the fragmentation, I'm looking at the absolute zero point, so the Big Bang, right? Taylor is looking at the present world, said in the title of his book, A Secular Age, right? He, he looks backwards from our point and does trace it back to the Big Bang. But his focus is more on the present and it's it's much more philosophical approach than a historical approach about the effects of the search for truth as more as an ab abstraction than as a social, political, and economic process. How did the Protestant Reformation reconfigure the understanding of matter and spirit, the natural and supernatural, and finally the living and the dead? Protestants disagreed on some of these items, but they did agree on one thing. The supernatural does not intrude on the natural any longer. No miracles. Those biblical miracles, uh, they're not going to happen again. So the natural and supernatural is redefined that way. Matter and spirit, Luther is different from the other Protestants in that Luther doesn't consider matter or material existence an obstacle to spiritual life. Whereas other reformers disagree and think that actually being focused on material approach to religion is an obstacle to a spiritual life. As Zwingli put it this way, anyone focused on material things is not truly spiritual. That's not true piety. So that gets redefined. And then the afterlife is that uh, for all Protestants, the afterlife is redefined by removing purgatory, the middle space where people go after death. So there are two places one goes immediately upon dying, heaven or hell. There is no purgatory. And the dead are dead and gone because the holy people who are in heaven, the saints, cannot pray for the living on earth, as was the case throughout medieval Catholicism. There's only one intercessor, and that's Christ. So that connection is gone. Then the living on earth cannot pray for the dead in purgatory. So that connection is gone. The communion of saints, which major Protestant churches still include that in their recitation of the creed, believe in the communion of saints. The communion of saints, yeah, it includes those dead people, but those dead people are unreachable, untouchable, and there's nothing, there's no communication. With Catholicism, you still have this communication. And I like to call the, this Protestant redefinition eschatological apartheid, because you do have two completely different spheres of existence that are not supposed to meet. You note the late Robert Scribner challenged Weber's thesis of Protestant superiority by arguing Catholics and Protestants were both stuck in religio-magical space. Can you note other recent or contemporary works that have dramatically changed perceptions of the Reformation? Yeah, Scribner was, was a big change because 
he came out with his work at a time where social history was taking over almost completely of Reformation studies. So he looked at uh, belief, again, through uh, things like images, texts, or the texts that accompany images. And he pointed out that, you know, Protestants still retained ritual, yes, and we should consider that very seriously, and that, you know, that's still religio-magical. The Scribner uh, occasionally pops up at conferences. He passed away a number of years ago, but his work pops up and then people get into heated arguments. So he's touching a live wire. Charles Taylor and Brad Gregory most recently. Taylor with Secular Age, Brad Gregory with The Unintended Reformation, which has a fairly sharp polemical edge to it, traces secularism, modern secularism, right back to the fragmentation of the Reformation. You've been listening to The Wheel, a Collegium Institute podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes. And to stay up to date on upcoming events and programming, visit collegiuminstitute.org.